I'm Wendy Luget, the university librarian, and it's my honor to welcome you here this evening. Great to see so many of you for what I'm sure will be a wonderful, wonderful program. Tonight is the kickoff program of an exciting season of events for the Friends of the Library. And I want to first off thank the board members of the Friends, many of whom are here tonight, for all that they do to support what we do, serving our, our current body of students and faculty and the campus, but also engaging so much in, in uh, sharing those things with the university uh, community writ large. They host, of course, speakers, uh, such as tonight's internationally recognized expert on lions, Craig Packer. But we have coming up renowned explorer Will Steger discussing uh, climate change on December 3rd, so put that on your calendars. And each of those speakers, I think, challenges us to look at the world with a, with a different view, with a different lens, to gain some new perspectives, and to engage all of us as uh, lifelong learners, whether we're students at the university or whether we're, we're folks who are just engaged in these topics. Now, what better way to start the season of a compelling topic than to talk about lions? Let's face it, we're, we're all fascinated by lions, right? They come in all sizes, and if you're a historian, you know about Richard the Lionhearted, the King of England and a great military leader. If you're a noted author, we call you, a, and if you achieve some fame, we call you a literary lion. And of course, if you're a sports buff from Michigan, you root for the Detroit Very good, very good. This is the audience participation portion of the evening. So lions really... Actually, I'm from Wisconsin, so I understand that, yes. And I've worked in Michigan, so I, you know, I, I'd covered all bases. So lions really permeate our culture. Um, they are known as the king of the jungle. They start on Broadway in the, the Lion King or the Cowardly Lion in The Wizard of Oz. And at the beginning of every single MGM movie, we hear them roar. But beyond these images, I don't suppose most of us on a daily basis think about lions. Until one morning in early July, uh, when we awoke to the astonishing news story about the Bloomington dentist who had raised an uproar, heard around the globe, the story of Cecil the lion. And all of a sudden, questions around ecology and politics and global economics were screaming at us from the front page. But as we've seen again and again, when there are questions like this that are thought-provoking and require some uh, great expertise, we can turn to the university and find individuals who can help explicate the issue, deepen our knowledge, and pique our interest, and that's what's going to happen tonight. Now, I remember back in July uh, thinking about how prescient the title of tonight's presentation was, Lions in the Balance, Man-Eaters, Mains and Men with Guns. This is also the title of Dr. Packer's re newly released book, and it's a subject to which he has devoted his life's work. As an undergraduate at Stanford University, he went to Tanzania to study baboons with Jane Goodall. He completed his PhD research at the University of Sussex and joined the faculty here at the university in 1984. 
Dr. Packer is the director of the Lyon Research Center, the co-founder of the Savannas Forever in Tanzania, and distinguished McKnight professor in the College of Biological Sciences. In 2003, he was elected to the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And in addition to the new book um, that will be out in the lobby, he is the author of Into Africa, which won the 1995 John Burroughs Medal awarded to authors with distinguished titles in natural history. He notes that after all these years, he still finds lions fascinating and feels that they lead the most interesting lives of almost any animal. And he's about to tell us why. Please join me in welcoming Craig Packer. Thank you. Um, the title really has to do with the future of a species. Lions are in the balance. As I'll show you towards the end of the talk, the conservation status of the lion is pretty dire. But it's a complicated story. And so I want to take you along a bit first, give you some more enlightening, exciting, interesting things about lions before getting to kind of the darker side of what's happening with lion conservation. And so I want to start with science. And science is just the best thing humans have ever invented. It really is. And so what I'm going to do is go over a couple of basic research questions. This is stuff that we've finished, we've published. We had a great time doing these projects. Why it is that lions live in groups. Then why do lions have manes? Then I'm going to give you a brief overview of something that's still ongoing that's basic research, still really fun and exciting. And then I want to get to conservation. And I want to put that in terms of danger management because it's a really terrible, nasty, horrible, awful animal. If you happen to live around lions, you don't have the same view as we do in the West. I will touch on sport hunting because that's part of the equation as to what's going on in Africa. And then I want to talk about the future. So let's start out by putting lions in context, comparing them with other species of big cats. If you think of a cat, you think of an animal that really isn't terribly gregarious. It would just as soon be alone somewhere, like a leopard up a tree, or a jaguar at a waterhole, or a tiger in the jungle. These are all three solitary species, and they're the lion's closest relative. And within the genus Panthera, there's this weird species, the lion, that's far more sociable than any other cats and has extraordinary levels of cooperation compared to almost any other mammalian species. Now, in the popular imagination, one of the most striking things that lions do is they hunt in groups, and it's often been assumed that that must be why they live in groups in the first place. But what I want you to think about for a second if you'll join me as scientists, that wildebeest calf is actually pretty easy to catch. And the female who's just about to grab it by the haunches, she could catch it all by herself. That second female really 
provides nothing much more than a second appetite. They're going to have to divide the carcass in two. Okay? So as far as the first female is concerned, it's not really a wonderful thing that she has her companion with her for that particular meal. Now there are cases when lions really do have to cooperate to catch prey. Big, dangerous things like buffalo, it would be crazy for a single lion to try to catch a big buffalo, it can weigh over a ton, all by itself. But it often happens that the prey is not nearly as difficult as a buffalo. This is not big enough and dramatic enough to make it on television. So you don't see this too much in documentaries. In fact, filmmakers are often making sure that they get a good footage of some sort of cooperative hunt that they can show it on the Discovery Channel or wherever. What we often see is here's a warthog, and that's reasonably easy to catch. And so this lone animal right here is likely to get it. And these other three are thinking, you go, girl. Tell us when dinner's ready, okay? So lions have what are called free riders. They have those that are just like, somebody does the work and the rest basically are parasites on the laborers of their pride mate. However, there's one situation where you see a profound level of cooperation, and that's when they defend their territory. Here we have four females that have located a stranger in their homeland. They surround it, and it's almost like, like that, that they all decide to attack from four different angles all at the same time. And I, this is about the most coordinated behavior you'll ever see lions participate in. And it's to attack each other. And this is the way most lions die. They're killed by other lions. Now we've done experiments to test their willingness to go after strangers. And so now I'm going to do a little uh, sound show for you here. First, I want you to hear this roar. So this is the roar of a single female lion. It's not hooked up. So we recorded that roar in the Serengeti, and then just like tonight, played it back to real groups of lions that didn't know who this was. This is a stranger. And we would play it in the middle of their territory. So this is basically like having an invader in their bedroom, okay? But this is a female roar, and we played it to other females. And if it's one female that we're playing this to, she's not necessarily going to go for the speaker, going towards the speaker. Two against one, a bit more likely. Three or more against one, they safely outnumber the invader, and they almost always go for it. Okay? And they're ready for action. They're like those females on the previous slide. They would kill the stranger if they could find her. Okay? So when we safely outnumber the opponent, we go for it. Now we're going to play a group of three females. Hold on to your seats.
that's quite a bit more intimidating. And we have our one female who hears three, no, two against, no. But now what's interesting about this is three against three is the same as one against one. Four against three is the same as two against one. Five against three is the same as three against one. They can count. That was three of them, there's five of us, there's enough of us, we can do it. Okay. This is actually the first study ever published on, a lot, on, a, on any animal outside of humans to show they could count. They could calculate the odds. Up until this point, I'd actually thought that lines were sort of just big, dumb blondes, but they actually are mathematically minded. They must like science, too. Okay, so what's the point of this for getting to sociality? It's this. The lion is the big cat of the savanna landscape. Those other three species all live in forests, and the forest is pretty much the same wherever you go. But in the savanna, you'll have broad areas of open grassland, like this in the foreground, where all the zebra are, and then there are little lines of little creeks and occasional spots where there's cover. And the lion is an ambush predator, okay? They need to get very close, and at the last minute, leap out and catch their prey. But cover is not all that common. So there are a few places on this landscape that are actually ideal for catching dinner. In this place, it's right down here, and this is where the buffalo would come down, for example, to cross the river or to drink. And that's where the lions want to be, in that one little spot. There's all this food around, but there's only a few places where they can catch it. Okay? So what we've done with the many years of study from the Serengeti, this project, by the way, started in 1966 and um, is run up just about till today, so almost 50 years. And here's the first 40 years of data. And one of my students here at the University of Minnesota, who's now in the faculty here, Anna Mosser calculated this across this 2,000 square kilometer area. Each one of these little squares is one square kilometer. Whenever lions live somewhere in here, the darker the red, the more cubs they were able to raise. Okay? Where it's very faint, their reproductive success is really low. So these poor prides out here seldom have cubs that survive. Up here, it's very rich. Along here, it's very rich, and they can have lots of cubs year after year after year. Well, it turns out that those red spots are along rivers. Okay? And so, in particular, it's not just rivers, but what's really good is where there's a confluence, where there's two tributaries that come together, here and here, and that's the best place to be a lion. Because the prey, if they're coming off the open area, and they know the lions are in rivers. They're pretty thick, but they're not that stupid. They know there's lions in the rivers. And they're going along, but I'm not going to cross. There's lions. It's scary. I'm going to keep going up here. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. And so the lions wait like at the, at the neck of the funnel. And that's where the food comes. So those places have got the best, most reliable food supply. Just the way that rivers are turbulent, when they run in the rainy season, they scour out the land and you get deeper water holes in those confluences. You also get more big trees growing around. And those are places the females can hide their cubs. They're places they can be enjoying the shade of the afternoon, etc. So it's the three rules of, arc of, uh, the three rules of real estate 
are satisfied by these confluences of location, location, location. And the key thing is that what we find is that there's a big pride that lives there, but the small prides are out here. And through time, what we see is that if you're a big pride, you are able to shove out the smaller prides. They're subordinate. You push them out into the open areas where they'll have no reproductive success, and your big family gets richer and richer and richer. Okay? So if you're a lion and you're part of the 1%, you're here, okay? And you'll be in a big group, okay? At least you're in a big group. So thinking about a group of lions, it's, the best way to think about it is it's a gang. And there's a constant gang warfare going on in savanna habitats, wherever there are a lot of lions, one gang against the other, trying to hold on to these very precious stretches of real estate. And so what Anna's work showed was that savanna landscape contains very well-identified geographical locations that can best be defended by groups. And so that's why lions live in groups. It's the geometry of being able to be really obnoxious to your neighbors as a group. Okay, so that's why they live in groups. Why do they have manes? Now the mane is a really identifying feature. I think if Cecil the lion uh, was of a species that didn't have that mane, it might not have created quite as much of a fuss. But it's the male's mane that somehow makes the species much more you know, magnificent or anthropomorphic or something. And so, you know, really, one wants to be very respectful. This is very serious research that we want to do on an animal that has such cultural significance all the world around. So if you're going to ask why it is that a male lion has a mate, you'd better use very sophisticated equipment. So we used life-size toy lions. We took life-size toy lions that were manufactured in Europe, brought them out to Tanzania, and we would show them to real lions, okay? It's respectful, right? And so we would vary the mane according to two characteristics, the length of the mane and the color of the mane. So the short blonde mane, this guy we called Lothario, short black mane we called Romeo, long, black mane, uh, long blonde mane, long blonde mane, yeah, there it is. Fabio, and then Julio, okay, long dark man, okay? So we would set these out two at a time, and we would see how the lions, the real lions, would respond to these large toys. So again, um, this is very serious science. This is science. It counts. It's real science, okay? And what I want you to see is this female. She's actually in heat, and she doesn't have boyfriend at the moment, and she sees these new boys in town, and uh, so there's Fabio, the long blonde mane, right there, and there's, there's Julio, there's Julio. She's a little confused. They usually are not that respectful, patient. <laughs> and she makes her choice, okay? Now, 
We did these repeatedly, okay? And just about every single time when we gave them a choice between a dark mane and a blonde mane, they chose the dark mane, okay? They preferred dark mane mates over light mane mates, potential mates. Okay, now we're gonna do the same thing with the male, okay? Now, I want you to appreciate that you're about to see a phenomenal act of courage because I, I talked about how groups of females will gang up and kill single opponents, okay, other females. Males are the same way. Males form what we call a coalition, and groups of males work together to kill single opponents. So this is one live male with two dummies. So what you're about to see is incredibly courageous because he's out number two to one, right? Okay, just keep it in mind how courageous he's being. He's so brave. <laughs> that was a two-minute cut in the tape there. Another five minutes. <laughs> okay. He's outnumbered two to one. Come on, guys. Oh, that's not real. Okay. So, what did they think? Okay. In fact, they didn't go to the dark mane male. They would always go to the blonde mane male, okay? So there's something about having a black mane that's really attractive and sexy to females and really intimidating to the males, okay? Now, one of the things to keep in mind about the lion's mane is it's not like hair color, okay? I see a number of people out here whose hair color may have changed through time. <laughs> but during the prime years of a lion's life, their main color can change in either direction. We have some that went from being very blonde, he's seven years old, but by the next year, his mane had really darkened. We've also seen males that had a really dark mane, say at five or six years of age, and then a year or so later, they'd gone blonde. So what the main color in a lion is, it's not like human hair that you're kind of born with certain pigmentation that stays essentially the same. But what this is doing is an indicator and so you have to be in really good tip-top shape to keep a mane black, okay? So why am I saying that? What is so hot about having a dark mane? So here's a rather handsome animal, but he's a surfer dude, right? He's very, very blonde. And this guy over here is going to be much sexier to the ladies and much more intimidating to other males. Well, it turns out uh, that these guys with the black mane males, they have much more testosterone. And they have thicker mane hair. So we would pluck some of these dark mane hairs and blonde, and that's really quite thick. So that's viewed under a microscope. And because it's thick hair, and that's a big, heavy jacket to be wearing around. And I can tell you the Serengeti climate is not at all like Minnesota's in the winter. It's more like Minnesota's in the summer, okay? So this guy's wearing this big, thick, heavy mane, even on the hottest days. And so, not too surprisingly, they get heat stressed, okay? We use infrared cameras looking at the temperature on the sides of their bodies, and these guys are hotter than these over here. And so, in fact, what this is doing is it's an indicator that this is a really tough stud with the black man, because he can take the heat. Lions, whenever they move, it's frustrating to say, oh, they're going to do something. But then they start, 
you know, they generate a lot of heat in their muscles, and so they have to dissipate that heat. And so these guys are actually heating up, but they can handle it, they can handle it. So they're the toughest males. And we know this because if you find a male lion who's been bitten or scratched or something, these guys with the black manes are much more likely to survive the next year after, the, after he was hurt. And this means he's able to hold on to a pride for a longer period of time. And as I'll show you in a minute, being able to hold on to a pride for a longer time is really important because that means they will have better survival for their cubs. So females that choose these black mane males are getting a husband who's going to be able to stick around long enough to raise their cubs together until they survive. So the dark mane males are the superior ones. Okay, so that's what we've finished so far that I want to cover tonight. Now I want to briefly tell you about a project that we just started more recently. Uh, and I call it a view from the top because the lion is the apex predator. It is at the very top of the food pyramid. And so what does it mean to have lions in your system? And how do all the other species interact with each other going all the way up that food pyramid? And so to do this, I've been working with a group at Wake Forest University in North Carolina and others around uh, looking at a more holistic view of the entire Serengeti ecosystem. And so I showed you with that red thing where the real estate value, that was our long-term lion study area. And that's in the middle of the Serengeti National Park. And across the top half of our long-term lion study area, we set out a grid of camera traps. And so what we're doing is working with ecologists who have looked at the soils and the grasses and how they're distributed within that 1,000 square kilometer area, we want to see all the different species and how the presence of one species affects the presence of another, how the change in the, in the green growth of the grass through the year does stuff. And we come up with a really cool picture like this, which predicts how all kinds of different things should happen going down the trophic cascades from grasses to soils from the lions. All very cool. Now, all I want to talk about tonight, though, is the details of having set out this camera trap grid. It's something we call Snapshot Serengeti. A number of you might have heard of this already. Uh, it's a very popular citizen science project. And it uh, enables us to not only keep track of what the lions are doing, as they usually do, but all the things they eat. So again, there's a camera trap grid within our overall lion study area. Whenever we go out and look for lions, uh, we see where they are because we've got radio collars on them. And there aren't that many, so it's pretty easy. But with the rest of the species, it's much harder. So we would ordinarily not be able to see where the wildebeest are at any given time, except we have these 200 camera traps. So that's a, a sequence of camera trap pictures taken uh, completely candid shots of these wildebeest, not knowing that their portraits are being taken. Otherwise, they would have polished their nose or something. And so you get all the species that the, the lions eat. So we can also see how the zebra and the wildebeest are use the same area through time, also other predators, like a cheetah. And the great thing about this project that I really like about it is it really does allow lots of people to work with us. So we set up this program called Snapshot Serengeti. Uh, here at the University of Minnesota is, uh, a, is kind of a hub for a citizen science program based in the UK and also in Chicago called Zooniverse. And so we were one of the first, uh, actually one of the very first uh, 
projects at Minnesota working with Zooniverse. And so you can go to snapshotserengeti.org and you'll get a photograph at random and you're supposed to tell us what you think it is, okay? And the reason for this is that we've been capturing all these pictures. It's tiny print, you can't read it, so don't worry anyway. Except that there's a word there, millions. Because we've generated millions of photographs. This camera trap grid, 200 cameras running day and night for five years now. That's a lot of pictures, because it's the Serengeti and there's all these animals. But how on earth can you keep track of every single picture if there's so many millions of them? Well, what we use is online volunteers who actually get the picture, look at it, they classify it, which species is it, that's a topi, and then they count how many there are. Okay, there's however many in the background, that one in the front, and they put it into the, the thing for us. And this was absolutely a group effort with um, my graduate students and postdocs here at Minnesota um, who were absolutely phenomenal in setting up this really large-scale project. And it's been really terrific because we have these pictures uh, around the world in the last three years since we started in 2012. Uh, we've had 180,000 people, different people all around the world classifying these pictures and they've done 10 million classifications. You meet a lot of obsessive people in, in your life and we're trying to get them away from online poker and whatever else they do to looking for hippo pictures and stuff. You know? Uh, so that's that. So I, I don't want to go into too much detail other than to say that we can see some amazing things with the data. It's not just the individual pictures. But like here's where our grid is located. Each little dot tells us if there's been a wildebeest in the preceding month at that camera trap. And this is two successive years, 2010, 2011. 2010, this, thing, this background is, is brown. It's based on a satellite picture that's telling us how much green growth there is. And the rains pretty much failed that year, and there were no wildebeest there. But the next year, it rained more, and you see more patches of green, and by the time it's really green here, that big circle means there's like 3,000 wildebeest came through that one camera trap. So we get the migration coming through. It's amazing. And so um, we found that it's been a, a very engaging project for a lot of people because it's really fun. That's wildebeest, yes. I know what a wildebeest looks like. I didn't know that yesterday, I do today. Score. And then also, you know, we engage people not only online, but also we're using it as a teaching tool here at Minnesota and other places around the country that use the snapshot Serengeti imagery to have their kids address questions with basic ecology on these very charismatic species. Okay, I won't take my shirt off because I will still be doing science, but I'm not going to be so happy from now on. I have to switch gears. And what I have to do is to remind you that Africa is so fundamentally different to what we're used to in this country. The experiences of people who live over there is so different. And I hope, if nothing else tonight, you'll, you'll leave thinking, ooh, man, that's tough for people to live in such extreme, abject poverty and what the consequences are for how they feel about wildlife. So I'm going to talk about lion conservation in terms of the management challenges. First, why is it that people hate lions? How we can try to keep lions out of trouble? And then contemplate what the future might hold for the species. So why do people hate lions? Well, the first and most obvious thing is they eat people. 
One of the most famous outbreaks of man-eating in recorded history, at least in Western lore, is the man-eaters of Savo, who in 1898 killed about 35 men who were working on the railroad between the coast of Kenya and Lake Victoria. And those lions were eventually shot by a great white hunter, and their carcasses now are on display in the Field Museum in Chicago. And they ate a fair number of people. You hear so much about the man-eaters of Savo, it may come as a surprise, since that was so long ago, that's like the misty past, that there are still outbreaks of man-eating lions today. So I was asked by the Tanzanian government uh, in the early part of this century to help investigate this outbreak, where this is the number of cases killed, uh, of people being attacked by lions each year. And there was a horrific spike, like 140 cases in one year, and averaged above 100 there for about five or six years in a row. So this had a profound impact on the psychology of people in large parts of the country. This is a poster um, when commemorating a lion in southern Tanzania who they thought was the same individual who had eaten 40 people, they thought. Okay? So it was very serious indeed, very profound. And we then set out on a national scale to try to understand the basis of this outbreak. And so the first thing that we noticed was if you look across the whole country of Tanzania, there's the Serengeti up here, there's Tarangiri, where all the famous uh, tourist destinations are in the northern part of the country. There aren't that many, outbreak, uh, that many cases. But here's the capital of Tanzania, Dar es Salaam's about here, and along the coast, of the Indian Ocean down to the Mozambique border, it was horrific. I mean, that's 95 cases in 15 years. That's 185 cases in 15 years. I mean, that's almost a case a month for 15 years. And I don't think there's any place in the Western world where that would be acceptable. I don't think there's any place in the US, Canada, you name it, where there'd be less than like the National Guard out there trying to get rid of these animals. So we wanted to know why it was so bad down here and not so bad in other parts of the country. And the first thing that came out, as you might imagine, is that in places like these down here where there's so many cases of lion, lion attacks, the kind of prey that the lions usually eat was rare. Okay? So in places where you still had a fair number of impala, wildebeest, zebra, the buffalo, the things the lions really thrive on, then there's plenty of other things for them to eat besides people. But down here, where there's very few other species of natural prey for them to feed on, obviously they've got to eat something, right? But what was really quite startling in this, and will make sense in a minute, is that there was one species that the trend was in the opposite direction. Where there were a lot of bush pigs, where people were always saying, yeah, there are bush pigs everywhere, there were a lot of lion attacks. In places that didn't have many bush pigs, people didn't complain or think about them, there were almost no attacks. So the bush pig, which is a native species, it's a wild pig, 
is very abundant in some of these areas. And the key thing to know about the bush pig is it's a nocturnal crop pest. And these areas down here along the coast, these are very, very poor farmers, subsistence farmers. They get one crop a year, that's it. If they don't get that crop, they starve, okay? I mean, that's a horrific situation that you're so poor that you barely have enough seed left over from last year. You gotta go out and plant it and hope you get another crop this year or your family's gonna starve. But you got a problem because these crop pests will come and they'll destroy your whole crop. So people then build structures, very flimsy, fairly low to the ground, very exposed, and they essentially are sleeping in their fields to protect their crops against the pigs. And the pigs are the only thing there for the lions to eat. So the lions follow the pigs into the fields and they'll find a person and that's, aha, uh -huh, that's their eureka moment. This is something else we can eat. Now, I really, really find this something we can never minimize or ridicule or anything. These are real people and these are very, very real dangers. And I want to just tell you two brief stories just to give you a sense of it. First, this gentleman is describing about how his wife had been washing their grandchild, two-year-old grandchild, in a plastic basin in front of their thatched hut. And she'd finished, and then she lifted the baby up so it could drip dry, and as she was holding the child up like that, as he's doing, a lion came, leapt in the air, grabbed the child, ran off 50 yards and ate it. This gentleman was walking home one evening, got attacked by a lion. The lion started trying to eat him. He fended it off, got his hands in its mouth, was pushing, 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 somehow managed to get away, but the wounds went septic. They had to be amputated. So he lost his hands, his lower arms. These are incredibly dangerous animals, and they will eat anybody that they find once they figure out humans are food. Now, beyond the fact that we discovered the link between the bush pigs, which attracts the lions to people's fields in the first place, we did find some quite fascinating scientific, interesting patterns in the data. And I just want to spend a minute on this one, that lions are primarily nocturnal, and especially when it comes to attacking people. Almost every single attack on people occurs at night. And it's not surprising because they know that we're fairly dangerous, that we can recruit help, sometimes you might carry weapons, so they're really only going to attack people in the dark. But darkness depends on the phase of the moon. When the moon is full, like in this photograph, then actually you can read the newspaper. And so the advantage that the lions have against us is minimal at the full moon. We also know that the lions don't have much of an advantage against their other prey either. 
So a full moon night is not a night when they're able to catch much to eat. But when the moon's below the horizon, that's when they're in their element. Their night vision is so much better than ours, so much better than any of their other prey species, they're able to operate much differently, much more boldly. Now in terms of man-eating attacks, we found this striking result as a function of the phase of the moon. And <clears throat> a few nights ago, it was that blood moon, right? And it was a full moon. And the moon was up just at sunset, okay? It's a couple of days after that now, so the moon probably isn't up yet. Be up in maybe another hour or so. So each night it comes up later and later. But before the full moon, the sun is set and the moon's still up. Hasn't, hasn't set yet, or it hasn't. I mean, the sun has set and the moon is already up. And each night as you go towards the full moon, it gets brighter and brighter, okay? So here we have, just before the full moon, we have um, a fair number of attacks, but as we get closer and closer to the full moon, just the last four days before the full moon, the moon is really pretty bright, it's already up when the sun goes down, and so the lions aren't going to catch much. The night of the full moon turns out to be the safest night of all because it's always bright. The moon's up at sunset. But then after that, the lions haven't had much to eat. And people are really only available if they're out walking around. It's after dusk. Uh, people who are parading around don't tend to do that much before dawn. They typically do it after dusk. So the prey, us, is most available in the evening and we're most vulnerable, and the lions are hungriest in those first few days after the full moon. So the risk of being attacked by lions triples just as we go fast past the full moon. Now, it's kind of ironic, I think, because there's so many myths about the full moon, like werewolves and everything else. You might think that would be the most dangerous night, but it's not. It's the safest. On the other hand, if the full moon gives us kind of a creepy feeling, maybe we're less likely to go outside the next few nights, and maybe that would have been enough to protect our ancestors and passed on that creepy feeling to subsequent generations. Given the fact that there was that blood moon the other night, I do want to take a second to say, well, wait, what happens when, the, when you have a lunar eclipse? And there's a wonderful story from South Africa southern Africa about the Bushmen. Because the Bushmen are hunters. They live outdoors. They're always in tune with what's going on with the wildlife. And their story is that there's two times of night. When the moon is up, that's human time. Because you know, we're safe from lions and we can do things. When the moon is down, that's lion time. Well, what about a lunar eclipse? Ah, lunar eclipse. Well, you see there you've got a lion who's putting her paw in front of the moon because she's hungry. <laughs> so we did this research in the man-eating area and we found out various things about risk factors and danger and everything. So we, we wrote a nice little poster to put out in various villages, get people not to be out at night when the moon is below the horizon. They should be sensitive to the moon. They should go out in groups because lions are more likely to attack a single person than in a group. Uh, we also seemed like the key problem there was the fact that they had to sleep in their fields 
protect their crops against these bush pigs. And surprisingly, nobody had fences around their crops. So we built little demonstration plots. And we also thought maybe, you know, if you can't afford to build a fence, and people are so poor, a lot of them can't, why not just dig a trench? Because one of the things that you hear a lot in East Africa is, well, the bush pigs have got short little legs, they can't jump. <laughs> so if that would be enough. And so, you know, we, we tried all that. And lo and behold, this outbreak did end, but it had nothing to do with us. Our help was completely irrelevant. It turned out that the last big year of these attacks was about 2004. And it was actually the reason this ended is well described by a BBC News Bulletin uh, from June, six, uh, June 2004. A dead wife bait traps killer lion. Tanzanian police have vowed to act after a villager faced, laced, sorry, after a villager laced his wife's remains to catch a killer lion. When so-and-so found his wife's half-eaten body, he calmly poisoned it, knowing the lion would return for the rest of the meal. And once people figured this out, that whether it's a half-eaten loved one, or a goat, or even a bush pig, just put poison on it, and you'll kill all the lions, okay? And it's really easy to get this stuff. If you go to Dar es Salaam, which is just at the top of that manning zone down to the Mozambique border, you can buy rat poison for a few pennies. Anybody can afford it. And it doesn't take much rat poison to kill a lion. Okay, so that's one reason why people hate lions. Perhaps affecting far more people than just 150 people a year is the fact that, oh, that's fake. <laughs> lions eat an awful lot of livestock. Oh, if only they would lay down with the land, but they don't. They eat them. So our own interest on in this happened uh, once a few years ago when one of my uh, graduate students, through Ingrid Johnson, uh, was going out and tracking the lions in the Serengeti. And she noticed this party of Maasai hightailing it out of the park, going back into the Maasai land. And uh, she thought, that's kind of odd. And then she tracked the lion that they had just left. They had killed her, and they'd cut off her ears, taken her tail. But she was able to recognize it was one of our study lions uh, because we used natural markings, whisker spots, ear notches, etc., uh, to identify it. And what the Maasai typically say in this situation is that, well, this lion killed our livestock. And it's definitely true that lions kill a lot of livestock. It's often not true that the lion they killed is the lion that killed the livestock, okay? But definitely lions do kill a lot of livestock and people don't like that and they retaliate, just like the man who poisoned his wife's remains. People are gonna retaliate. They're gonna solve the problem on their own. There's nobody out there who's gonna help them. So, one of my other students, uh, Bernard Kasui, who came here from Tanzania and did his PhD in our department in St. Paul, uh, studied another population of lions in Tanzania, Terengiri National Park. So the national park's like this, and he put radio collars on three different groups here that I'm showing. All of them were collared inside the park, and they were assumed to be national park lions. But given that boundary there, they spend an awful lot of time outside the park. And what happens in a situation like this is you've got wildebeest and zebra that aggregate in here. They concentrate 
in the middle of this park because it's got permanent water. The rest of the area is much drier. And so there's a lot of animals here during the dry season. But once it rains, the prey move huge distances, I mean, off the slide, way up there somewhere. And the lions, being heat stressed, that's a joke, they're lazy. They'll only go as far as the nearest livestock. So they get out to the Maasai land and they start eating cows and goats and sheep. And so Kasui found a very striking relationship. Each point here is a different village. In those village, where a lot of livestock were attacked in a year, they killed a lot of lions in retaliation that same year. And the exchange rate, cattle for lions, is about one to one. For every cow killed by a lion, a lion was killed by Maasai. And there are tens of millions of livestock in Tanzania and tens of thousands of lions. So that's not a good exchange rate. And not surprisingly, with this much conflict and this much damage, the Terengiri population has gone down quite dramatically over the last 10 years or so. Now, it's not just that the lions leave the park and go into people's corrals and bomas and pasture lands. When the weather is not very favorable for the, gra the grazing livestock, the herders bring their animals into the reserves. So here's up in Kenya in 2008, quite a dry year. A lot of Maasai brought their livestock into the park. This is the lion's home. It's the lion's home. But if a lion dared kill a cow inside the park, then the Maasai were still angry enough that they used another insecticide, furidan. This is an insecticide this time, furidan, and they poisoned the lions. So they will do this, okay, over and over, and it's happening all the time. It's very common. So, how do we keep lions out of trouble? Uh, first way I call the barrier method, and that's simply that you've got a physical structure that separates the lions from people, livestock, etc. Now, I need to give you a bit of background because this is science again. And what we're going to do is to try to reckon how we can estimate whether a park is being effectively managed or not. And to do this, we have to take into account that Africa is very diverse. So some places like the Skeleton Coast here in Namibia is desert. There's very few animals for the lions to eat. So therefore, the lions are very scarce. But then you have places like the Serengeti that are super rich with lots and lots of wildebeest and zebra. And so you expect a lot more lions. So just because there's very few here doesn't mean it's poorly managed. You have to take into account how many lions ought to be there. So we've done that. And so with some colleagues of mine from Oxford, they were able to estimate the typical relationship between how many tons of wildebeest or whatever there are per square kilometer, and then how many lions typically were there before all these problems became so serious. So back in the golden days, before there were so many people and so many livestock, then lions were presumably living pretty much the life of Riley in these places. And where there's a lot of prey, there's a lot more lions. So if we know something about the biomass, then we have a way of predicting how many lions there ought to be. And this red line is going to be our expected value. It's kind of what ecologists call the carrying capacity. 
And so for any given place, like this one in Benin in West Africa, Botswana in Southern Africa, according to the prey abundance, there ought to be that red line, that many lions, or that many lions. And what we see in an awful lot of places in Africa is way fewer than we expect. Or maybe they're doing okay for a while, but then they've been going down recently, going down really fast, okay? So this is how we can estimate how well a park is being managed in terms of protecting its lions. And unlike the previous slide where everything looked horrible, there are also places where things are working great. So every one of these places, there's the red line, how many there ought to be. And in this case, every, every population is doing just fine, thank you. So what's the difference? Why are some doing so well and others doing so poorly? Well, it turns out, <laughs> this is not rocket science, it is science, but it's not rocket science, that the fenced reserves where the lions are being kept out of trouble because they're not eating people just outside the reserve. They're not killing livestock just outside the reserve. You're seeing the population much closer to the carrying capacity, whereas places that are unfenced are doing terrible. Okay? Lions are doing awful. And it's really significant. It's not just that right now there's fewer, but the trends are much worse. And you don't have to struggle too much with what an exponential growth rate means, but Trust me that these fenced reserves all have positive growth rates, so they're all really healthy. They're not only abundant, but they're doing well. And a lot of these red ones, the unfenced ones, that's negative growth. That means they're shrinking, okay? Now, if we put these two together, very simple extrapolation tells us that the fenced reserves, if you wanted to predict how many lines they're doing into the future, the fenced ones are gonna be fine. There's no conservation crisis in Africa if we only consider their fenced reserves. But outside the fenced reserves, it's pretty disastrous. And so we expect maybe half the populations to have essentially blinked out in the next few decades, okay, if these current trends continue. Okay, so that's the barrier method, it works, okay? But you can't use that everywhere. So what else can you do? The alternative to that is what I call perpetual vigilance. In this case, you're gonna engage local people and somehow improve livestock husbandry practices sufficiently that you're no longer in that cycle of dead cows and retaliation with dead lions, okay? So, if we think about Africa, and I'm gonna come back to this map again a little bit later, but this is where lions still exist in Africa, the darker gray, brown, we're pretty sure there are lions there. A lot of places, maybe, not sure. Lions used to be everywhere, and this is all that's left, so it's an archipelago of lion habitat right now. But there are some places, especially in Kenya and Tanzania, where you have, like I described with Tarangiri, that the wildlife disperse from the park, and they mingle out with the livestock and the pastures for much of the year. If you put a fence right here in Terengiri National Park, you'd block the migration, you'd kill it. That would be the end of the wildlife spectacle in that park. So fences are not always possible. So what do you do? Well, a number of programs, Panthera, which is based in New York, National Geographic has its big cats initiative. They're trying to develop some programs like living with lions, lion guardians, Iwaso lions, African people and wildlife, da-da-da-da. And the idea here is that you have a Maasai who ordinarily might be going out with a spear, 
But instead now, he's motivated to go out with a radio antenna to track the lion and not then go find it so he can kill it, but he can then warn his friends that there's a lion just over there. So get your damn cattle in the corral over here now because it's dangerous. Okay? And then if something does go wrong, they're, they mediate some of the disputes so that it doesn't automatically escalate to go in getting the poison and the guns and the spears and killing the lions. Now, this Lion Guardian project over here is near Amboseli National Park in Kenya. And this is the oldest and the most respected of these kinds of projects. And this started uh, in 2006. And this is one of those places where you can see there's our carrying capacity up there. That's the expected number of lions. And this is a log scale. So there are very few lions that were there. They started the Lion Guardians project. It took a few years to take off. But the lion population is showing good signs of recovering. Okay? So that's hopeful. That's hopeful. But before we get too excited, there were so few, so few lions here. This is like a dozen lions. Now they're 30. Yay. That's great. That'll save the species. No, it won't. And that's also you know, a trend just over four, five, six years. And the reason to be worried about it is down in Namibia, there was a program that was partly financed by uh, USAID in conjunction with WWF. They threw $40 million into the development of a bunch of conservancies to try to get, again, people to be very much more positive about wildlife, trying to restore a lot of areas. And this is unfits down here, this, part of, this particular part of Namibia. And this is one of the most successful recoveries we've seen uh, in any of the unfenced reserves anywhere in Africa. Okay? And again, they start out with virtually no lions at all. And again, it's a log scale, so it went up a lot. But unfortunately, they're a victim of their own success. Because when lions were this scarce, you kind of forget. Oh yeah, we used to have these big yellow cats. I don't know, we didn't like them, I can't remember why. But then you get a bunch more and they start, now there's so many lions and they start eating livestock again. And so people got really fed up. And although I, this organization that's been doing this, they've refused to publish how many lions they have anymore, but they did report about five or six years ago that people got really angry that all the lions are around, and they poisoned them. So a lot of these animals are gone. So will this sort of project work in the long term? It remains to be seen. Okay. Sport hunting. The problem from a conservation point of view, beyond the, the things that you all heard about when Cecil was shot, is that unlike most animal species, lions have a very complicated social system. The male is a father, and he has to stay with the pride for about two years to protect his young against invading males, because every time there's a male takeover and there's any small cubs, the incoming males refuse to be stepfathers. They have a very short window when they can breed themselves, have their own cubs, and they're not going to wait the two years it takes for young to grow up on their own. They replace the step cubs with their own biological children. So, resident males do something for pride. They're not just looking good. They're protecting the pride. 
The replacement males will kill the small cubs. Now, if you think about this purely demographically, it takes a male about four years to grow up to be big enough, strong enough, and self-controlled enough to be a good resident male. And then he needs to remain in that pride for two full years for his cohort of young to reach the stage where they can then survive on their own, even if he's gone. Okay? So it's a simple way to think about this problem. And so if you're going to have trophy hunting, this is not getting into the question of the morality of it at all. It's just if you're going to have it and you want to be able to do this in a sustainable manner, decade after decade, for a long, long time, you really need to be careful. And you should only shoot males that are at least six years of age because then they'll have had their babies, they've then grown up, harvest them, let a new generation of males come in, harvest them. But you've got to be slow and steady on this. Now, this was work uh, that we were really forced to do because one of my students here had been working in one of the hunting reserves and she'd been told, you know, it's funny, but just outside the Serengeti, there are all these maneless males. I said, there are no maneless males outside Serengeti. It's, it's cold. And the males have these beautiful, big, flowing manes. That'd be really weird. And the hunters are always describing how there were these maneless males, like it was a separate species almost. No, there's only one species of lion. That can't be right. So I asked if I could see some of these maneless males. And it turned out it's true. They were maneless because they were still kids. So you've seen what a big, full adult male looks like. And you probably saw pictures of Cecil. He was a full-grown male. And an awful lot of the lions that get shot in Africa are like this. I mean, that, that's, okay? Now the problem with this, the serious, serious problem with this is that you shoot them when they're that young, even if they've got sperm, okay, then they will have just gotten the female pregnant, and then, boom, they're gone. Some other youngster comes in, kills these cubs. We were able to look at what would happen, hypothetically, in a population, a hypothetical population, that would be stable at about 80 individuals if there was no hunting, whatever. If you allowed different quotas of males within that population, there's a huge effect of age, okay? If you restricted it to only those six-year-old males, then you've got that stability. Guy comes in when he can handle it, he's there until he's had his young, they're now safe, he's replaced, you do the whole thing. It's just a harvesting strategy. And it wouldn't matter how many males you shot in that area because they can be replaced, it's okay. The quotas would never be this big, but you could do it hypothetically. But as you lower the age at which these animals are being shot, we only did that down to three. We didn't imagine when we did this that people would ever shoot two-year-olds. I mean, that, that guy isn't even out of grade school yet. I mean, he's not even in middle school yet. Lion middle school. You're going to have a really profound negative effect. So we published this and we really became advocates that if you're going to have hunting, do it right. And restrict what you're going to do to the older males. Leave the young ones alone. 
And the only reason that they're shooting these kids this young is because they've shot all the old ones. They're gone. There's none left. Okay? So we just said, no, you've got to put the brakes on it. So we tried. We did our very best. Working with the hunting industry, we wrote a little guidebook how they can estimate a lion's age. We actually had this on display at various safari club meetings around the country. And people would say, oh, yeah, I'd love to shoot that one. We'd say, no, he's only four years old. He's too young. You have to wait another two years. Don't shoot that one. Okay. Well, it turned out that lion hunting was so poorly managed in so many countries in Africa, the reason they were shooting those kids, those two-year-olds and three-year-olds, was because within those governments, a quota was not a limit. It was a production target. It's a production target. If you don't shoot enough males, if you don't shoot enough lions, we're going to take your block away and give it to this politician. We're going to give it to that rich businessman. We'll take it away from you. So keep shooting. You're not shooting enough? Too bad. Okay? So they had this whole system in Tanzania of excessive hunting that went on forever until everything started crashing. Okay? And I saw this thing was crashing, and I kept saying, hey, you're going to lose your lions. You've been overhunting. And so I was able, amazingly, to get a few sympathetic people within the Tanzanian government to give me some data to see how much they've been hunting in each part of the country. And because they've been overhunting, you can actually take advantage of that statistically to infer what would be a sustainable harvest. And so it turned out that you should only be shooting one lion uh, per 1,000 square kilometers, or maybe one lion every 2,000 square kilometers. That's a lot of real estate. That's a big area. Just shoot one or two in that big of an area every year. Okay? But what we found was in a lot of them, there were blocks where they were shooting 10. And that's 10 or 20 times what's sustainable. That's how bad it was. Okay? So it's clear that those kids that were being included in the offtake was because the production targets had to be met. People were afraid they were going to lose their hunting blocks because the government was insisting that they shoot as many lines as they could. So, again, we had some, uh, I had an ally within the Tanzanian government for a while, uh, and he was working with their parliament, and they actually passed a law, Tanzanian law, in 2010, saying, okay, one way we can control this and prevent this horrific overhunting, going back to the other thing, if you do it age-related, then you won't have such horrible effects on the population. And that felt pretty decent, except the law has never been enforced. And that was frustrating. So I started complaining to them. And I also was concerned because uh, I felt that you know, conservation of these things doesn't depend on what people say about what they're doing, <laughs> but what they actually are doing. And they're lying, right? And so um, I got too noisy about that. And two years ago, I lost my research clearance. And so I'm no longer allowed even to go into Tanzania. Earlier, I said that we in Serengeti, I'm actually talking about the people who've taken over the project from me. I'm not even allowed to enter the country now. Because the president is one of the people who gets money from hunting. And the excuse, it was clear. They told me I lost my research clearance because I was sabotaging the Tanzanian hunting industry.
Okay, so that's sport hunting. What does the future hold? Well, what is next? Well, fortunately, bad behavior in a third world country is subject to international regulation. Lion hunting in particular is subject to international regulation. Currently, lions are being considered for listing on the American Endangered Species Act. I was in Washington last week. I talked with people on this committee. I think they're quite ready now, especially post-Cecil, because people are really pissed off at the bad behavior of this whole industry. They're willing now to, to not just try to sustain the status quo, which they were doing until this year. They now seem to be wanting to do something. It's also the case that next year at CITES, that's the Convention of International Trade and Endangered Species, lions will be considered for Appendix 1, and that would ban all lion hunting all over the world. This top one would just prevent American clients like Walter Palmer from bringing their trophy back to the U.S., but people in other countries could still import their, their trophies. But CITES, that would ban it completely. But should it be banned? And even though, you know, I've had some bad experiences and, you know, I pissed off a bunch of people, I kind of do that anyway. So, you know, it could be my fault, I don't know. So we want to be objective about this because we're scientists. And we want to ask, are lions really truly danger endangered? So I showed this map earlier and I didn't explain these three boxes, and I will now. So we've done a much more sophisticated analysis than I showed earlier, saying fenced versus unfenced. We're going to talk just all the lions in each of these different areas. And so to be enlisted as endangered, there are really strict rules. And it's meant to be following scientific data, okay, so that lion numbers must be shown to have declined by half over three lion generations. So that's 21 years. The way they calculate a generation, lion generation length is seven years. So what's happened in the last 21 years? And if we can show in areas that lion populations have indeed declined that badly or worse, then they qualify by these international organizations as endangered. And it does matter, this map, because first let's do West Africa and Central Africa. We've done some fairly sophisticated statistics on this, and just kind of like a weather forecast, there's a 99% chance that the lions over here have declined by that that meet that criteria, that they've actually declined that much. And looking on the map, God, there are very few places with lions left in West Africa. It's just all farms. It's all pastures. It's all people. No space for lions over here. The second area is East Africa. And our statistics suggest there is about a 47% chance, again, that they qualify as endangered. Because in many places in Kenya, Tanzania, Uganda, it's these countries, uh, and Zambia down here, the lion population, some of them have been going down pretty fast. And so altogether, it looks pretty good that they also qualify as endangered. The reason it's complicated is southern Africa, because we've actually seen overall growth in South Africa, Namibia, Botswana, and Zimbabwe, where Cecil was shot. Actually, the lions are not doing that badly. The behavior of the hunters was atrocious, but the lion population there is not doing that bad compared to the rest of Africa. So, uh, talking to people in various agencies in the last few days, it does seem possible that lion hunting may soon be banned outside of southern Africa. So that'd be East Africa, West Africa. Things would continue on as before down in southern Africa. Okay.
Now, the next thing I just want to say is we've got to be realistic. If we really want to see this species survive, lions are in the balance. It's true. Lions are disappearing over most of the continent. We have to be realistic about how you achieve successful conservation. And it's very clear that good fences make safe lions. Okay? And again, looking at southern Africa now, South Africa is doing really well. So that, there was a point in time where that park there, the Kalahari Gemsbach, and then the Kruger Park, that's the only place in South Africa that had lions. But now there are lions all over. Okay? There are more lions in South Africa today than there were 100 years ago. Lions are doing fine in South Africa. It's not a conservation issue at all down there. And the reason is that when they bring lions into these areas, restoration ecology there starts with the fence. First thing you do, you build the fence. You put the fence around the reserve, and you take the local people and everybody, and you say, look, here's our fence. Bah, elephant can't get through it. Bah, lions can't get through it. Okay? So you'll be safe. And that surely has to be the most important criterion that human life is taken into consideration when you're going to have these very dangerous animals. So they do that. And the other thing that's kind of interesting is a lot of these are privately owned. So these are government, that one's government. There's a few other government parks that are fenced with lions in them, but there's also a lot of private conservancies. There's good land tenure down there, land security. And just going back to this fence versus unfenced thing, if you're going to try to look after populations of animals, you actually have to pay for it. That's a good return on investment. Because for a certain amount of money, you're going to get a lot more lions if it's fenced than if it's not. So you're going to have a better tourist experience, or you're going to have a better time seeing the animals if it's fenced. And South Africa, all their parks, all their reserves are fenced, every single one of them. We have fences in Florida to look after our Florida panthers. In India, they're building trenches. This is like what I was showing earlier with the bush pigs. You know, but this is for elephants. I guess they don't jump too well either. But they're building barriers to try to protect people against elephants. Okay? And here's the Serengeti. This is where I worked for so many years. And this kind of illustrates the full range of problems, of challenges, conserving a healthy ecosystem. And it goes west to east. On the west side, this is all agricultural land. Okay? And there's been a huge amount of habitat loss. All these red dots, that used to be savanna. But now it's cotton fields, maize fields, it's villages. There's a huge number of people over there. Okay? On the east side, we don't worry too much at this point because this is pastless. This is kind of like Tarangiri. The animals move back and forth over the boundary. Maasai live out here, wildlife, et cetera. But it's the west side. This is all farming. And that's a boundary you can see from space. You can go to a Landsat, you can go to Google Map, and you'll see the, you'll see the boundary. Okay. Now, the pressure out here is phenomenal. So the people who manage these protected areas, this, these are game reserves that are next to the National Park. And they count about 70,000 livestock coming in illegally, like I showed earlier in Masai Mara. They get it really intensively here, okay? Down here, they get a quarter of a million livestock coming into the reserve a year, a quarter of a million. And one of my students from here, Dennis Rinch, um, 
did an estimate. He studied the people who live along this boundary, and he was able to estimate that they're eating 120,000 wildebeest a year. There's a million wildebeest, so it's about 10% of the population every year being eaten just by the local people who live along the boundary. So just to give you a sense of the magnitude of this, here's this area down here. And these little squiggly things, those are actually arrows. And what they're meant to indicate is a livestock trail coming into the reserve that's about as wide as you know, one half of the auditorium here. So that's a massive influx. And so here's, here's the elephant in the room about all of this. Right now, along here, there's about half a million people, okay? But their growth rate is 3.5% per year, which means a doubling about every 18 years. When I first went to Tanzania, there were fewer than 10 million people. Now in Tanzania, there are 50 million people. By the end of this century, Tanzania is predicted to be the fifth most populous country on Earth. Africa's human population is expected to quadruple in the next 50 years. Okay? Now, go back to this one more time. And there's two lessons I want to take from this. I know we're, I've been going on for a long time, but I hope you'll, you're still awake enough for this. First is, uh, again, you've got, the, for a certain amount of money, you can get a lot of lions if it's fenced. If it's unfenced, you get fewer lions. Now, this is the regression line. That's kind of the average trend of how many lions you get compared to what there should be in an unfenced reserve. So it's pretty low through there. And so if you want to have at least a half as many lions as there ought to be in the population, it works out to be about $2,000 per square kilometer per year. $2,000 per square kilometer per year. Perspective, the Salu Game Reserve, which is the biggest in Tanzania, is the size of Switzerland. We need a lot of money. Okay? The other thing to keep in mind, not only do you get more lions where it's fenced, for a certain amount of money, but now I've divided the unfenced ones into two groups. These are areas that are more like desert, and there's very few people that live nearby, and so for a certain amount of money that you go in, you got more lions. But down here is where you've got higher population density, human population density, and given this quadrupling, everything's going to be trending down, 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 down. As human population pressure increases, around these unfenced reserves. So it seems to me fairly objectively simple that we ought to think a lot more about expanding the use of fences in as many parts of Africa as possible. Okay? Southern Africa, they have a lot of fences. They don't have a, a lion conservation crisis. The rest of Africa does. So there it is. Good fences make safe lions. That was something I published in the Los Angeles Times uh, a couple of years ago. And in that, I mentioned the Salu, this really big reserve that's the size of Switzerland. And I said something about, well, you know, it is an initial cost to build a fence. It'd be about $30 million to put a fence around Salu. But I've talked to people at the World Bank. That's chump change. It's easy. You know, people just have to ask for it. Okay? So I published this thing. We published the other paper. And I pissed off so many people. They hate it. So while wow, putting fences around, they hate it. So I have a colleague in the UK, this is a scientist, and he actually wrote to me in an angry email and said, I'd rather see the Serengeti disappear altogether than with a fence around it. And I don't get it. I'm sorry. I'd rather see a fence around an existent Serengeti than an unfenced one that's gone, you know? It seems like a fairly clear choice to me. 
Also, we had a, uh, there was a group that used to help fund us and do a lot of work with this NGO, and um, they got really mad at me when we started advocating fencing, and they withdrew their funding support saying that conservation should only promote the concept of virgin wilderness. And you know, you've seen that map. That's not a virgin. You know, it's gone. It's too late. You know, that's all under the bridge, so to speak. Okay. Now, what I really think on this is not only is objectively that's the best solution, is to be much more willing to consider putting fences in places, especially those agricultural areas where you have those hard boundaries. But you know, there's a lot of people that are completely opposed. I don't think they matter. I don't think I matter. None of us matter compared to the local people. Remember them? The guy who lost his arms, lost their grandchild? They're there all the time. They're the ones that are going to decide what happens to these places. And this is an interesting thing that came out in the Tanzanian press a year or two ago, where the Serengeti, it was announced, was going to erect a fence on the west side, on the agricultural side, to curb rampaging elephants. And this is because local people not only hate lions, which I've gone into in great detail, they also hate elephants. Because elephants come, they'll destroy your crops. Even worse than a bush pig is to have an elephant in your crops. It's not good. They can squish your house, too, and your little dog, too. It's bad. So part of the reason there's an ivory crisis, don't hear so much about this, is that people don't like elephants. And if poachers want to come and kill the elephants, great. You'll get people quoted in the press saying, oh, we love elephants. Well, to the reporter, but behind your back, they're just as soon see them gone if they're going to come out and destroy their livelihoods. People don't like dangerous wildlife. They have to live with them. We don't. And I just want to show you a few things, how people take these decisions on their own. People poisoned the lions in the Manning area on their own. The Maasai decided they're going to spear, poison, whatever, the cattle killers. This is in India. For a lot longer, people have been worried about what's going to happen to the tiger. Lions have only recently been on conservation radar because they're thought to be tens, hundreds of thousands of them. But we know tigers have been rare for a long time. And you've got the conservation agencies going around saying, we're going to make it great so that people will live with tigers. People and lions and tigers can all live together. It's cloud la-la land, but this is what we're going to do. And, but the reality is that people hate tigers. Despite tons of money being put in to conservation efforts in India and other Asian countries, people decide, I'm going to put up a fence. And if it kills a tiger, great. I win twice because I'm safe and I got rid of the tiger. Okay? This was put up by local people. And it's an electric fence, way too powerful for anything to survive once it touches it. So it electrocuted the tiger. They put around fences. They're going to do this anyway. That's what they're going to do. They're going to be safe. Of course people want to be safe. I want to be safe. Don't you want to be safe? And so, you know, if this impales a leopard, great. If it impales the, another dangerous animal, great. I'm safe. All this millions of dollars that goes into making people more tolerant of wildlife, this is a tiger that walked into a village a year or so ago in India around one of these big famous projects. And the local people saw the tiger in town and they beat it to death with sticks because they hate tigers so much. That's the reality. That's why I talk about real politics. Local people will decide on their own that they're going to build the fences. And you better make them good thinking about the safety of the animals. So, good fences do make safe lines, and people have to get over the fact that they think the world is still one big virgin wilderness out there somewhere. Okay, the other thing, as I've already shown you, is that 
this is going to be expensive. Man, if you really want to have lines over a huge area, it's going to cost billions of dollars every year from now on. $2,000 per square kilometer per year. That adds up. There's supposed to be about a million square kilometers of wildlife habitat left in Africa that lions can live in. There's your two billion right there. But that's only, what, a B-1 bomber? You know, Donald Trump's bar tab or something, you know? It's not, it's not really that much, you know? So, you know, given that there probably won't be $2 billion, a lot of people need to start thinking, well, okay, we're going to have to give up on a lot of these places. Maybe it's going to be impossible to protect Tarangiri because all the animals leave and they'll just be gone. So maybe that's true of the Serengeti, too. They'll just be gone. There'll just be wildlife left down in southern Africa because it's either desert or it's fenced. Okay? But I'd rather see people to be more ambitious than that. We've all been browbeaten by these penny-pinching people who keep saying they're going to cut taxes on the rich and we're going to get trickled down, you know, all that stuff. Everybody's afraid to say, well, we really ought to step up spending for something. But if we really want to have lions in the next century, lions are in the balance. They could go in most of Africa. We're going to have to pay for it. And so we all not to be thinking about how much money is that going to take? Where are we going to get it from? It's really nothing to places like the IMF, the World Bank, to get that kind of money. You know, if the world agrees that the lion is a world heritage species, the giraffe is a world heritage species, and that we all need to contribute to their upkeep. These are countries that are least able to afford that sort of thing. We need to help. Right now, there's a lot of places in Africa that are called World Heritage Sites, dedicated as a World Heritage Site by UNESCO. You know what that does? UNESCO gives them a decal, a little plaque, a handshake. No money at all. No money at all. We have to figure out how to pay for it, and we all, it's our responsibility too. It's not just theirs. They suffer the cost. They're the ones at risk of being eaten, of losing their cattle. We have to help contribute to that. Protection of them and the protection of the wildlife. And with that, I'll end. Thank you very much. <clears throat> And I, and I thank you for sticking around. I thought I was uh, going to take an hour. That was an hour and a half. But I will take questions. Yes, ma'am. Was the Cecil Hunt legal or legal? Um, it was illegal or legal. It was, um, you know, that happens so much in Zimbabwe. Uh, that's very common that you have these hunting companies that bait or call up lions, pulling them out of the, the parks where they're not allowed to be hunt, and they pull them in. Um, and I, I don't know the actual laws on that. It's certainly unethical. And I know any number of hunting operators who would decry that sort of behavior. But I don't actually know the Zimbabwe law. It's very common in Zimbabwe. Uh, they also, they'll pull lions in from Botswana across the border in Zimbabwe so they can shoot them. Yes, sir. Yeah, why is the human population increasing at such a rate? This, this brings you to the one word answer to why all of this is such a mess. It's poverty. 
Africa is by far the poorest continent. And when you have that intensely horrible degree of impoverishment, you have high infant mortality, high maternal mortality, you have almost no education of the women. And these are all the demographic factors that have been shown in study after study that encourage women and families to want to have six, eight, ten kids. And that's true, it's been true in every country in the world. It, was, it used to be true in Europe about 150 years ago, Sweden, average family size. I mean, we, you know, those Victorian families, they're big. But as education improved for women, as maternal uh, mortality rate and childbirth went down, the desired family size went down. And that's what we see in the West now. And that's called the demographic transition. And all the continents have undergone the demographic transition, essentially, except for Africa. And it's nowhere close. So the preferred family size is still big. Yes, sir? Thinking back about the main color. Yeah. Why are there any blonde lions if the dark main lions So the thing is, you have to be in really good shape to be able to grow the mane black. And in any population, there's just some individuals that are weedier than others. And it may be because the, the diseases that are currently in the population have been evolving to track their hosts. And so they're better able to infect certain individuals, and thus that's going to weaken them. And the genes that the black mane males carry today 20, 50 years from now, or well, in lion terms, even more like 100 years from now, by 100 years from now, maybe the parasites have been able to adapt to attack their genes, and then other variants would be favored. So within the population, you're going to have some individuals that are genetically healthy according to the current conditions, but those conditions vary through evolutionary time. And with parasitic infection, viruses, bacterial infections, they can evolve really quite quickly. Yes. I completely agree. So what he's asking is, wouldn't it be better, rather than directly trying to protect the wildlife, instead tackle the underlying problem, which is poverty, rapid human population growth? And that absolutely would be the best thing to do, uh, because unless you address that, it doesn't matter what you do with your lion guardians or your fences, the sheer human pressure is going to be so enormous another 50, 100, 200 years that there's no hope for these places unless the continent can develop to where they too undergo the demographic transition. And you're asking that leads me to a thought I've been having lately, which is, you know, we got rid of our dangerous animals here. They're gone until recently. Everybody feels safe and, you know, hey, let's put some, why aren't there wolves in Yellowstone? Let's put some wolves in Yellowstone, that'd be cool. And most people in the country say, yeah, because they feel safe. But, you know, if anybody suggested doing that in the 1840s or the 1850s, oh, let's bring wolves to Laramie. Get out of here, partner. You know, it wouldn't work. 
And South Africa is kind of a similar situation. I mentioned there's more lions now than 100 years ago in South Africa. They got rid of everything. They made everybody safe. <laughs> and they've, got a, they've reached a level of development, economic development, education, everything. Said, so, hey, let's bring some lions. Let's have some elephants here. They used to be here. And so I kind of think it's, it's kind of this psychology that you can have at a national scale that you know, we feel safe. And we miss these things. They were part of our tradition. And we'll bring them back, but provided we've got the fence and everybody will be safe. So maybe the rest of Africa will do the same thing. If there's hope that there will be development eventually in Tanzania, Kenya, and other countries, you know, maybe they'll lose everything. And then someone will say, hey, let's bring some wildebeest back to the Serengeti and throw in some lions eventually, too. But we'll make sure people feel safe before we do that. Yeah. No, no. She's asking about um, there in South Africa is not got a golden halo when it comes to their animal ethics. So in terms of their wildlife management and having more lions, wild lions than they used to, they're doing a great job. But there is also this canned lion hunting industry, and those are lion farms. Basically, those are lions that are being domesticated to be shot by people in a room this big. And there's six or eight thousand of those, but we don't count those at all, because that's nothing to do with conservation. You had a question there. Well, it's interesting. The lion's mane is sensitive to temperature, because you know the, the amount of stress is going to be environmental. And we did see that in the Serengeti over the last 40 years or so, they don't have as many big black manes as they used to. The manes are getting lighter. Otherwise, what we see out there is that there's a greater unpredictability in the weather. And so in the past, there might be a drought every 20 years. Now they're every five. And there might be floods once every 20 years. Now they're every seven or something. So the variance has gone way up in the last decade or so. And this is, again, making it far harder for this growing human population to stay on their side of the boundary, right? because there's food over there, and, and they can't get it, because, you know, but there's a drought. What are we going to do? Yes? Yeah, so she's asking about how much money. Uh, I'm going to rephrase it a little bit just because I think this is what you're getting at, is that the, one of the justifications for sport hunting of lions is that it gives value to wildlife. That uh, local people will get enough money so that they're willing to put up with the risks. And sadly, that's the biggest myth about the hunting industry in most of Africa. In most of Africa, the funding that's generated by sport hunting is absurdly low. Uh, so Cecil's a good example, because he was sold for $50,000, $55,000. And with that $2,000 per square kilometer estimate I told you about, an average lion pride needs about 80 square kilometers. And the male lion needs to be six years before you can hunt him. So you need to invest six times 80 times 2,000, which is about a million dollars. So if Cecil had been shot for a million dollars and if every penny of that had gone back to the conservation of Wangi, where he came from, then that argument would be justified. 
but it was $50,000, and very little of that 50000 is going to go back to the, to the management. So that is the, that's where I actually get really, f not frustrated, but it's just infuriated by the hunting industry because if they would be honest and say, you know, we're only generating a little bit of the money that's required, we need help. Hey, World Bank. Hey, UNESCO. But no, that's this thing. Yes, don't worry, little lady. Don't worry your little head. The men with the guns have got it all under control. And they don't. They're just a few pennies on the dollar. And I think that's plenty. Thank you. Please join me in welcoming or thanking our speaker. I want to thank again uh, the Friends of the Library for sponsoring this event. If you're not a friend, I hope you'll consider joining. On the back of the program, there's information. We have books for sale, uh, and Dr. Packer will be out there uh, if you would like an autograph. And the reception is in the back of the room, uh, so please join us back there and enjoy some uh, uh, refreshments after this great talk. Thank you again for coming. Thank you.